Welcome to another episode of the Cornet Northern California Chapter Podcast. This is Melissa Pacey, Principal at HGA Architects. Our podcast today features the two Cornet Northern California 2018 honorees, Bob McIntyre and Jay Bechtel. I'm pleased to be sitting here with John Lucas, Vice President of Global Real Estate and Workplace Services at Juniper Networks and our current Northern California President. Hi, John. Hi, Melissa. How are you? I'm good. How about yourself? I'm doing great. And hello, everyone. Um, we're here to introduce the 2018 CRE Award Honoree Podcast. It was just a few weeks ago when we gathered at the famed St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco to celebrate for this year's CRE Awards Gala. And what a fabulous event it was. Um, I believe we had a record crowd of over 700. Absolutely. And what a fantastic event. Uh, it was just time-honored and a fantastic event for everyone, I think. I totally agree. What was your favorite part of the event? My favorite part about the event was really seeing um, the honorees. Uh, the, the evening is such a wonderful evening for the honorees to see them, to see all their past work, to see um, all their connections with industry professionals, to see their families. Um, I think it really highlights um, you know, the, the honorees themselves and everybody gets a really good feel for um, what they've done in our industry. I totally agree. And I couldn't be more excited that we have the honorees both here with us today. Yes, we have Jay Bechtel, real estate project executive for Google, and Bob McIntyre, founder of Nova Partners, president for 25 years, and recently happily retired. Thank you both so much for joining us here today. And Jay, thank you for hosting us as well. You're very welcome. So I wanted to start in with some questions for both of you. Uh, I wanted to start with you, Bob. Um, could you tell our listeners about your first job? Well, my first job was delivering newspapers. I grew up in the suburbs of Boston, and I had a paper route before school, and I delivered the papers from my bicycle. I had to ride down a big hill in the hot and cold weather, ride up with my load of newspapers, and Boston's very windy, and you have to put the paper, you can't just fold them and throw them on people's lawns. You had to get off your bike and put them behind everyone's door. So I did that for quite a few years, and that got me my start. And I think my entrepreneurial spirit really came out the, the time when I had a lot of people who would leave me the exact amount, 56 cents for a week's worth of newspapers. And I unilaterally decided to raise the price to 60 cents because I got annoyed that they couldn't tip me four cents. I never got caught for that, but I, 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 I wasn't properly authorized. I love that. Um, how do you think that that experience has influenced your career? Well, it did a couple things. It made me appreciate having a few bucks in my pocket and also become aware of what it took to put them there. So no teenager likes to get up early, especially in the wintertime, and ride a bicycle through snow and slush and rain. Uh, uh, I had a six-day-a-week paper route, and it just teaches you about the work ethic. How do you um, think that you parlayed that into your, your next job and the rest of your career? Well, it's certainly, plus other interim work. I worked as a long time as a construction worker, and my dad was an iron worker, and I did that for seven summers and winters while going through high school and college. That certainly motivated me to get an education so I didn't have to do that for a living. And I think the importance of that lesson is if you want to have meaning in your life and you want to be fulfilled, you need an education to teach you how to read, write, think, and communicate. And I think that was the building blocks for my career. That's, that's awesome. Uh, also, question, do you get your newspaper delivered today? I did until recently, and I've switched to electronic recently. Well, were you tipping your newspaper? Absolutely. <laughs> More than four cents? <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Excellent. Jay, I'm wondering, when you look back at your career, could you pick out a defining moment that led you to where you're at today? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, when I went into commercial real estate as a broker, so I was in sales for five years out of school, out of college, and then I decided to go into commercial real estate as a broker. And that was uh, seven, I did that for seven years, and it was a 100% commission job, day one, no salary, no 
expenses zero. You made a deal and you got paid. And if you didn't make a deal, you didn't get paid. And you could work uh, hours and hours, dozens of hours, hundreds of hours on a deal and not make it. And you didn't get paid. Um, and I, was, I survived in that for seven years. And then ultimately, that's, what, that's how I got into the corporate world. And how did you make that decision to to go from um, brokerage to the corporate world? Like, was there uh, other options that you looked at, and how did you decide where you wanted to? Yeah, be? no. Um, after about six years, I decided I, I wasn't going to do this my whole life because you're always chasing your next pay, basically your next deal, your next paycheck. And I thought to do that for another forty years, thirty to forty years, I didn't want to do that. Plus, we had gotten married, we had our first child, we had a mortgage, so I was plenty motivated at that point to uh, to get up and go to work. Whereas when I got into brokerage, um, I needed a little kick in the pants. Um, Xerox was comfortable, and commercial estate was not, and I needed that. After seven six years, I realized I didn't need that anymore. So for that seventh year, I started looking at. Um, what else I could do. And at first I looked at within real estate, did I go to, did I want to go work for another brokerage company? No. Did I want to start my own brokerage company? No. Uh, developer jobs were very rare. A couple of developers hired guys, but it was very rare. Um, so ultimately I, um, I researched the sports business. I mean, I talked about this during my speech. I literally thought I got very close to selling softball bats and balls. And thankfully, at the same time, I got an opportunity to work at Cisco Systems through a guy that I worked with at my commercial real estate company. He had left CPS, started at Cisco. A couple months later, I called him say, hey, how's it going? What's, what are you doing? How's your job? We were friends. Just wanted to see how he was doing. And at the, by the end of the lunch, he offered me a job. That's awesome. I think it's really important to point out, obviously, how important your network is in making those types of decisions and leveraging your network to find out their experiences. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, sure. So that that relationship led me to Cisco. And then after 11 years at Cisco, uh, we had spent uh, two and a half years in Australia when I was at Cisco. When I got back from Australia, Cisco's growth had slowed down. So all the real estate and construction work that I was doing had more or less stopped. So I was still working there. Uh, and I went to a golf uh, event, a Cornet golf event, and ran into uh, Chris Waffler, who I worked with at Cisco. And she and just said, hi, how are you? I gave her a hug. And, and uh, she said, I said, what are you doing? And she goes, well, I'm working at Google. And I thought, I, th- I thought you retired. Because when she left Cisco, she was going to retire, build a houseboat, and float along on the Delta the rest of her life. I said, well, I thought you were floating along on the Delta. And she said, I got bored. So she was at Google. So anyway, good to see you. I gave her a hug, went off, and two weeks later, I got an email from her. Hey, we're looking for a project manager. Would you be interested? And I was, I was fundamentally interested. Be, everyone thought, oh, it's Google. And I said, I was interested because of the real estate work and project work that that job was about that's what started me because everyone hears about google and free food and the perks and they're great by the way they're great but that's not why i wanted to talk to her i said i'm interested in the job and because the hr person had said to me you sound happy at cisco and i said i am and she said well why are we talking and i said because you're doing real estate and construction work i love doing that and i'm not doing that now that's awesome. So I think, you know, Bob, you also have a really diverse background. I was wondering if that was kind of strategic or if it was a little bit more organic and if you could talk about that a little bit. My background is varied in that I've sat at a wide variety of seats at the same CRE table. I've been the construction worker, I've been the general contractor, I've been the corporate real estate executive, been the real estate developer, and most recently and finally been the uh, partner of of starting a project management, construction management firm. And I've liked it that I've been in the same industry for my whole career and seeing the same industry from multiple perspectives has been very helpful because each of those seats at the table gives you a different vantage point. But most of all, it's helped me to understand what do I need the contractor to do. Helps me to understand what the developer's objective are if you're dealing from representing a tenant interfacing with the developer. And it's left me positioned well to help people for what I did at Nova Partners for the longest single stretch of my career. How can you help an owner get the best 
project done and the most smooth process that takes care of budget, schedule, and quality. As you were moving through those different seats around the table, at, so, at one point were you, you know, kind of setting goals for yourself about kind of what your next step would be? Or were you kind of, you know, saying, well, that seems interesting. I think I'd like to try that. Or how did that happen? Well, I always was very interested in setting goals. I immediately after undergrad, I went to work for general contractors. And I decided to go through the Stanford Graduate Construction Management Program. And when I did, I took, a, in addition to the technical construction courses, I took real estate finance development, and I took um, a lot of things that helped broaden my overall background, but it also made me want to move at some point to the real estate side. So I worked further for a general contractor after Stanford, then got the chance to be on the real estate side of it, first as a real estate project manager at McKesson, then later as a real estate developer for Sutter Hill Limited, Palo Alto-based real estate firm, no longer around, but they were around for about 40 years and developed um, offices, warehouses, and shopping centers all around the western states. So I was really able to take my prior skills, look ahead strategically and say, well, where do I want to be in five years? I've always liked looking and say, seeing people a bit older than me and trying to say, who's doing now what I'd like to be doing? finding out what their skill set is, and then challenging myself to develop competence in those other areas to help lead me to the next place. Who are some of those people, and did you reach out to them directly to kind of pick their brain a little bit like Jay did? Well, certainly. Um, I had one person I'd learned from who's very uh, close to Jay's past, but I took a, a number of lessons from Dennis Chambers. And I thought that Dennis exhibited a strong work ethic, challenging, requiring his people to show up at 7 o'clock in the morning. Not 7.01. Every day. You're late. <laughs> you're late at 7.01 and you had to kick money in with your fine to go into the party fund, if I remember that correctly. And so I think from Dennis's attitude, you learn, you know, if you want to get stuff done, get up and get to work. And uh, I had a, the president of Sutter Hill was my couch, and he was a great administrator. And I found that I'd learned lessons from him that when I was the president and CEO of Nova Partners, I took a lot of what he, I learned from him where he was a great communicator and brought that over to creating a filter in my head of this, all the things we've done and then saying, well, which people need to know which things? And so he was a good mentor for me. And there have been a number of others along the way. Excellent. Uh, Jay, what so far have you felt like is the biggest success you've had in your career? Yeah, so let me add to what some of the Bob just said about perspectives. When I was in, uh, when I was at Cisco, I was building a six building, 700,000 square foot project. And one of the guys on my team was a facility manager. And frankly, I thought he was kind of a pain in the neck. He was constantly commenting on all kinds of stuff that I was like, this is none of your business. You're slowing me down and all this kind of stuff. One example where there were a lot of fountains being designed into the project. Well, fountains are notoriously unreliable. They break, the pumps break, they're constantly being fixed. Well, he was a facility manager. He knew sitting at our design meetings, he was going to have all these fountains to fix. Years later, I'm a facility manager in Australia and the light bulb went off. And I thought, wow, now I get it. Now I'm in that job, I gotta fix stuff that somebody else designed and built and maybe not didn't think about the maintenance side of it. So it was great. And I just, Bob, when Bob said that, I wanted to just say that's, it was great to sit in that facility role. And then when I came back as here as a project manager and I'm building things, that facility perspective I thought was great because architects, at times can design things that are not practical and they don't think about that that element of their design. So that, I thought that was, uh, when Bob said that, it made me want to comment like that. Yeah, almost a little bit like reverse mentorship. Yeah, maybe. yeah, it was, I thought, wow, now I've got that guy that I thought was a pain in the neck. I'm that guy now and I'm <laughs> going to make those comments. But it, again, it helps to the overall design of the project. Yeah, absolutely. And outcome. Jay, what so far has felt like your biggest success in your career? Wow, great question. Um, well, the first real estate deal that comes to mind right away is Moffitt Place. Uh, Two million square feet. We think the largest office deal ever done in California. I, I 
don't know if anyone keeps records of that kind of stuff, so I don't want to say it is, but certainly one of them. And again, a, a lease. You know, Apple's new project is three million square feet, and there have been other projects. You probably built more than two million feet on your with your deal with Sobrato. But those are development projects. This was a so it's I want to be a little careful. So it's the largest lease. I mean, we started with it's a six building project, and originally we were going to take three of them. Uh, one day, Dave Radcliffe, Google's uh, vice president of real estate construction workplace services, John's uh, counterpart uh, here at Google, uh, came by and said, "We uh, we need all of them. Get them all." There were six. It was a total of six buildings. So it was two million square feet. Uh, from from a, a transaction perspective. That, that, that'd be my answer. Um, and, you know, I think that a lot of maybe why that feels so significant to you is there was a lot of challenges along the way. Could you talk a little bit about that and what you did to overcome those things? Yeah, I mean, every I mean, John knows this, Bob knows this. There's challenges in all your deals. I don't, I don't, didn't think of it as a challenge. It's just huge. It was gigantic, you know, two million square feet. Just the enormity of it was really why I, why I said that. Um, sure, there were challenges, but I don't think any more so than a lot of other deals I've worked on that just weren't that big, but you still have the same, you know, legal issues. And in a lease, that's primarily what you're dealing with are all the legal, getting the attorneys to resolve things, get it done, as opposed to endlessly arguing their individual legal position on the point that from a landlord's perspective, they're going to argue one way and the tenant's going to argue the other. And the, and the lawyers just start stalemating on stuff and you got to plow through it and get it done. Uh, but all the, but I'm, at some point, all transactions have that issue. Right. And it's, maybe it's a little bit, you know, you kind of getting in there and helping each see the other's perspective. Oh, you have to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's no way. I've said this a million times if uh, this is going to sound terrible, but I'll say it anyway. The lawyers could kill every deal you work on. If I let them run the deal, I'm sure John, yeah, and Bob would agree. If, if the lawyers ran the deals, they'd ultimately stalemate on their individual side, their positions, and they could never get to consensus. And you have to step in and say, um, and, and get, get through the issue. My favorite thing to say to our lawyers is when they start arguing these really, at times, obtuse points, how many times have you seen this happen? Oh, well, never. Oh, okay. So what are the odds of this happening in this deal? Pretty low. You know, so you, you put some perspective around it because otherwise they'll just argue, they'll argue about it forever. Absolutely. Jay, after two million square feet, when you run into Jay Paul, does he bend over and kiss your ring? <laughs> no, I, I didn't meet Jay. Jay didn't directly work with us, but Jeanette Sammartino did. Jeanette's the senior vice president and COO for the Jay Paul company. She handles all the real estate negotiations uh, on behalf of Jay, and uh, I worked real closely with her on that. Fantastic. Bob, I'm going to throw the same question over to you. Um, what do you feel like has been the biggest success, especially now that you know, you're retired, you can look back over your career? And there are three projects that I've worked on that really come to mind as the ones that have had the greatest amount of meaning to me. The first one I'd think of is uh, when I was in-house at Apple, I was director of real estate development, design, and construction, and I led the team that built the Apple R&D campus, the One Infinite Loop location. And that project was a fun project, but it was technically very, very challenging. The site didn't become available until the 89 earthquake created structural damage to the existing buildings on site that were under long-term leases. That put the site into play, and <clears throat> Apple needed a large, project because it had otherwise only rented the buildings next door, which were mostly all small. So the project required demolition of the existing buildings, long-term lease from Apple, a joint venture with Sobrato. We negotiated a forward commitment uh, lending with Metropolitan Life, and the transaction had a, also included a uh, future build to suit if we ever wanted to remove the parking lots and build, replace them with structured parking and office towers directly on the De Anza footage. So that the Apple campus was a real major project and took over a year to negotiate. And I have a, the source of pride of saying that I got to spend more time on the other side of the table from John Sobrato than anyone else in the history of Silicon Valley. And fortunately, we're now friends and we just vacationed together um, recently and, and uh, uh, we're good, good friends and play tennis regularly. The next project I think of as a highlight was doing the Intuit headquarters in Mountain View. 
And that project was very interesting because it really kind of had every challenge all in one single building. We had to negotiate a full and complete EIR with the city of Mountain View. We preceded the North Bay Shore precise plan and needed to negotiate our own fee structure ahead of all the projects that came subsequent. We had a saturated contaminated site, uh, lead platinum as the design objective, raised floor throughout, uh, four-story atrium, and a lot of technical things to make the project because it was very, very ambitious. But it was a wonderful team. The Intuit client was great. WRNS is a wonderful architect. Hathaway did a great job building it, and I really enjoyed that experience tremendously. But the project that carries the most significance to me personally was helping Ronald McDonald House on Sand Hill Road build the ground-up new Ronald McDonald House and then the renovation of the existing house next door, making the two together the world's largest Ronald McDonald House. And I did that as a pro bono assignment, and I think it was the most the best people I've worked with for certainly the most worthwhile cause. How did you get involved with that? Well, Bob? hang on, hang on. Oh. Since, <laughs> since Bob got to talk about three projects, you made me think of a second one that I wanted to talk about after Jay Paul, which was uh, my first significant uh, transaction with as a broker because that got me over the hump. I was broke and, well, not broke, but pretty close. And I sold a 120,000-square-foot building to Ashton Tate, software company back there in the late 80s, and that got me over the hump. I made enough money that I could pay my bills, I could sleep at night, and I bought my first house. In fact, the house we live in to today, we, we, I bought from that transaction. That really got me over the hump. It got me our first uh, top five award, which is a sales award at CPS. So that was, uh, I had to think of that after you rattled off three projects. Did you get a cube next to the window? <laughs> no, it didn't change my, my desk. You know why they call brokers brokers, right? No. Now you do. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> oh, you're yes. broke. They can or be you're broke. Not broke. Yes. So, Jay, do you have a third? No. Thanks. <laughs> uh, too bad. Um, no problem. Okay, uh, Bob. So you mentioned Ronald McDonald House. How did you get involved with um, them? I know it was you mentioned pro bono, but was that something you were already involved with, or was it through the project that you got involved with the organization? It was through the project. Uh, Brad Lyman uh, had contacted me and said they need some help. And I, uh, at first, I was really approached just to be an advisor and come to their uh, a few of their key meetings. But I saw that they needed more, and it was something I enjoyed. I lived nearby, and so I just really jumped in all the way. How do you think that that involvement contributed maybe to Novo Partners and your career afterward? Well, I think the... The, the real contribution was at a personal level to do something that was truly meaningful and was helpful to people who are in a gigantic personal crisis. So I, I benefited a lot from devoting part of my workday to helping someone other than myself. And it was great to be, great to be on the team because as the new Packard Hospital is opening, they just did not have enough places for the families to stay, to be near their kids, because they serve kids from all over California and because they do uh, heart and lung transplants and help people, children with very severe cancer issues. And the families need to be together and their siblings. So it, it really was more meaning personal than it was to my corporate career. That's um, fantastic and obviously a huge accomplishment. So, Jay, um, do you, you've talked about a couple mentors that helped you kind of transition between roles, but do you have a specific mentor that's played a really big part in your career that you, that may come to mind? Well, yeah, oh, I mean, I had several. I started with my dad. Um, my dad, I would always talk to about uh, what, anything. Unfortunately, he died almost 20 years ago. Um, I remember when I wanted to leave Xerox, he thought I was crazy. My first job at Xerox, and in his mind, that's uh, you stay at you you have a career there. You stay at it's Xerox. Why would you leave? And he thought, um, hey, you know, he thought it was a little crazy when I said, hey, I want to go into commercial real estate. I, I went through the reasons. I wanted to be more motivated. More motivated. I wanted to make more money. That was part of it too. But there was risk there. The broker comment is true. I could have gone broke, or I could have made more more money. And thankfully, I made it. So a number of years ago, I met Bill Agnello at actually a Cornet event, I believe in Orlando. 
It's when I first spent time with him. And Bill is the uh, vice president of real estate. So again, John's counterpart, Dave Radcliffe's counterpart at Sun Microsystems. And I talked to Bill for a number of years about um, uh, career thoughts or usually it was business related, career oriented things. Uh, And then uh, Howard Charney, Howard was at uh, Cisco Systems for a number of years. And I, uh, I would, I would have lunch with, with Howard periodically. And, and again, they were usually, uh, uh, business mentoring, uh, personal, maybe in a sense of, of maybe some help thinking financially. Oh, I've got three kids. I got to save for college, have those conversations with, with them about that. And, um, and, and Howard was a great, uh, a great mentor as well. And did you kind of seek them out, or was it kind of just, you know, through being in Cornette or kind of happenstance meeting them? And- well, I mean, both. I mean, I, I certainly sought them out, I for sure, with Bill. I mean, I like I said, I, I spent time with Bill at a, at a Cornette function, and then I reached out to Bill. And, and similarly with Howard, um, uh, Howard was a, um, you know, a high-ranking VP or at uh, – at uh, Cisco, ran a business unit. So for sure, I, I, I reached out to, to both of them. And that's probably something you would recommend to our listeners to do. Yeah, I, I think mentoring, uh, I, I, and now I'm doing it as a mentor to other people, and I love doing it. I love talking, I love listening to what they, what their challenges are and then try and give them, tell them stories. Here's what I, I ran into this, here's what I did. Try this, try that. But I always tell them, it's your agenda. It's you, you, we can meet weekly, daily, daily is an exaggeration, but the frequency of meetings and what we talk about, fundamentally, you drive it. I don't, I'm not here to drive you. You, you come to me with whatever you want to talk about and then, and then we'll, we'll navigate through that. And and again, I like to give them options, choices. Well, have you tried this? Have you tried that? And, uh, but I always put it in their court. It's, you're driving this. You set, you, you know, when do you want to meet? You tell me, I'll give you some, you know, I like the mornings are better because I'm not as, not as busy and give me a couple of dates and we'll figure it out and we'll go, but you're in charge here. And I think that's important in mentoring that the, I think the mentee expects the mentor to tell them what to do. No. Unlock the secrets. Not at all. It's not about that at all. Tell me what you want. Tell me where you're struggling. And then we'll, that, that's, what, that's what gets it going. So I'm part of several mentoring groups. ULI is one, but Cornet is one as well. And Cornet's program uh, has been, uh, I will, a lot of times I will get a, a request from, a, I, so I put myself out there as a mentor. And then I'll get uh, communication, typically an email from somebody that says, you know, I, they've read about me. Do you, would you like, would you be my mentor? And that's how it starts. So yeah, I think Cornette's program is uh, is relatively new, and uh, but so far it seems to be working because I've gotten a number of e- I've gotten a number of requests. So I think how they're doing it is getting the word out. So that's working. Yeah, and I, I'd add that um, that whole process is is a great one. Uh, mentees sign up for the program. Um, they go through a speed dating process where they meet the mentors speed uh, networking the speed networking <laughs> process that's no right dating. <laughs> okay you're right <laughs> speed networking <laughs> and uh and then they kind of get to choose they they get to put in their first second third uh request for a mentor so they kind of get to align themselves with who they think they would be the most served by with the mentor and then they get assigned a mentor and then it takes over from there, yeah, um, which and, is and, great. In, in the Cornet example, most of the m- mentees are, they're not local. So I haven't physically met them. It's been over the phone. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. With, but no, John, to your point, the, the ULI program is local. Yeah. So there I've met and we meet as a group. Uh, but that was another thing I did. I told that, that group, we can do this one-on-one. And sometimes it's hard in a group to talk about your deep, dark secrets that you really want to talk about. So I told them, I said, we don't have to do this always in a group setting. You can call, contact me individually, and we can do this one-on-one. And a couple of them have done that. That's fantastic. And awesome. So there's lots of ways, I guess lots of ways to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I know here locally, the Young Leaders have the program, um, which I think has kind of grown to be similar to the ULI program. And then globally, we have the Cornet program, which you've been taking a part of, which is fantastic. So you're both total rock stars, clearly. That's why you were honored this year. Um, But I'm sure there has been at least one moment in your career where something hasn't gone 
exactly the way that you wanted or hoped. Um, could each of you talk about one of those types of moments and what you did to overcome that? Well, I can jump in on that. And um, I didn't think Bob had any answers. I thought he was silent. <laughs> <laughs> and at when I was, um, I was at Sutter Hill through the 80s, a real estate development, and I worked on reasonably large ground-up office and industrial projects in Fremont and Silicon Valley. But come the latter part of the 80s, the real estate market had grossly overbuilt to the marketplace. At that point, there was like 40 million square feet of vacant buildings in Silicon Valley alone. My skill set at that point was being a real estate developer. I had worked to acquire projects, to build them, to finance them, to lease them, and to sell them. That skill set suddenly wasn't needed. And I was in maybe about 37, 38 years old, had um, three kids, one a baby, and a, and a mortgage that was in a pretty big obligation. And at Sutter Hill went away. Sutter Hill got bought by a bigger company and they decided to liquidate things. So I had to run around and look for a job when no one needed someone to be a real estate developer. And the position I found was to go to work for Apple. Apple wanted to hire someone who could help them to build a major ground-up project. They had people that were good at leasing things that existed. But I didn't immediately find that job, and I had to look around and figure, well, what am I going to do? I kicked the tires with a couple other things. But that certainly was a time where when you have a lot of obligations and you don't have a job, that is a very precarious place to be. So that's the kind of thing you have to go through. You have to expect it will happen during your career. And you need to be sure that you've built a skill set that someone wants. And you need to have made yourself into the kind of person that an employer wants to hire. How do you do that? You need to, when you have issues in your job, you need to be able to go to your manager and say, I've got this issue, but go with, here are my thoughts about how to address it. What do you think? You don't want to be going to your manager just with problems because you become a problem to them. Think things through on your own, get advice, and go to your manager with the thinking done and see if you can help lead them to the place you want to go. Yeah, can, let me let me let me try on that. My favorite contractors are ones that do exactly what Bob said, which is, "Hey, we got a problem, but here are two or three ways to solve that problem." My favorite guys to talk to on construction jobs are the superintendents, the guys with the flannel shirts on and the work boots, because there's no salesmanship involved, and they're in the trenches building it. And when we have a problem and there's some constructability issue, they've run into something that is. Jay, what do you want to do? And I'm like, you tell me. And they come back with two or three exam two or three ways to solve it. And same for my attorneys. Same exact example. They'll bring some massively complicated environmental problem and they go, what do you want to do? Like, well, well, you're the attorney. You're the expert here. You tell me. And give me give me options. We can go this way. Well, what happens? Go through that. We can go this way. Here's what happens. And I like that. I think Bob's comment is absolutely right. And I think that applies as well in the workplace as an employee. Yeah, I got a problem my, to my boss, but here are a couple of ways that I think we can solve it. And that that approach will then get you get you through that. And that gets you in good standing with with your employers as well, uh, with your bosses. They don't look at you as a problem. It's like, yeah, we're always going to run into something that's going to, we need, we need help with. But, and then, and then that gets you into the strategy thinking. You're strategizing. Let's try it this way. And then your boss is engaged and he might come back and go, well, okay, what have you thought about this? And that's all you want. You want all that back and forth. You'll get to your solutions that way. And I, I, I love it. I love that. I, I love a good argument. I think it's fantastic. I love getting all the different perspectives on stuff. And you don't have to always agree. But I really think you get to the, your best outcome. It's got to be respectful, right? You're not going to be, oh, that Bob, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And you're not going to get that Jay, he's an idiot. 
it no. It's good, constructive, smart people, back and forth. There's pros and cons to all these scenarios, and you weigh them all out, and you ultimately go, okay, let's. this is the one we're going to go with, and then you go. And I, I, I think it's great. I love doing that. It gets a little tense sometimes maybe, but I think it's fun. I'm going to add to that. Um, one tenet that I've always used in my career is connections, conviction, courage, and composure, which is kind of what you're talking about is, you know, connecting with people to work together. We're paid to think. We're paid to think. That's what, so when you're talking about these things, you go to your boss and, and you say, here's what the problem is. You're paid to think and bring up solutions as well. Yeah. Having the courage to say that to them, having the composure to communicate that to them, it's, I think it's really a fundamental part of being successful. Yeah, and I think ultimately once I go through all that back and forth, and I'm, I'm in. This is, yes, what do you think we should do, Jay? We should do that. Why? And we go, th you know, again, pro well, the, I, you always got to do pros and cons, I think. You yes. still got to say no solution doesn't, there's no perfect solution. There's going to be cons there or risks there, uh, and here they are. But, you know, because a lot of times I run into this with the attorneys. They'll say, Jay, are, are you signing off on this from a business perspective? I say, yes, absolutely. Okay, I'm in. That's what I think we should do. If I'm wrong, okay. I'm wrong. I'm, but somebody's got to stand up and say, let's do this. Yes, that's I'm right. sure that happened to you a bunch of times on the Sobrano That's project, the courage right? part of it is being, having the courage to say, yes, I'm stepping forward. Yeah, but you're, you're, you've, you, you do that with, with knowledge with you and research behind. You're not just yes. you're not winging it off the top of your head, hopefully. You know, there's more thought to it than that. But then you got to go. Let's in. Let's, I'm in. Let's go. And as you're in the early phase of your career, you need to make sure every issue that comes your way, you dig into it deeply. You read the full topic when you're, as Jay's talking about working with attorneys, they can teach people that aren't attorneys a lot. Make sure when you're reviewing leases, you read every paragraph. Highlight anything you don't understand. But every time you're doing something, dig into it enough that you come away with a deep knowledge of that. If you do that all the time, when there's an environmental issue, dig into that. And the more that you read and learn, the more you can accumulate knowledge across the full broad spectrum because our real estate and construction world has a ton of depth in it. And we're all knowledge workers, so the more knowledge you can accumulate, the more you're in situations where you can apply that knowledge. And I always try to think of my goal through my, across my career is you can't ever set as the goal to be the smartest person in the room on every topic because there's so many. But if you try to be the second or third most knowledgeable person and try to build up you know, read that title report so you understand what is in a title report. Know what an Alta survey is and what all the symbols are so you can review it. Make sure when you do a purchase and sale agreement you understand why you're, you're making different representations and what's behind that and what's the level of knowledge that you have when you're making that. Make sure you know what an indemnity is and the different types of an indemnity. But dig and learn those topics because that's how you make a contribution. Uh, when you say that about leases, I remember that about uh, Dennis at CPS, uh, Dennis Chambers. Um, he would absolutely make us, you read those leases. And that's not a fun thing to do. 50, 100-page legal document is really a grind. And that's what we used to do. We'd read them. We'd highlight them. And uh, we would make sure we didn't tell our clients we were attorneys. But on the other hand, you had to have a level of knowledge on these issues and uh, we have to, when you said that, it made me think about Dennis was mandated. We had to read our, our clients' leases when we were doing deals for them. Uh, so, Jay, you are here at Google, which is, you know, definitely on the forefront of innovation for real estate. Um, but what do you see on the horizon for corporate real estate? Well, um, you know, look, here, certainly here in the Bay Area right now, it's, it's pretty simple. It's supply and demand, right? I mean, we learned it in economics in high school. There's massive demand right now, limited supply. Prices are up. That's hitting residential. It's hitting the contractors. It's hitting commercial in most areas. Now, there are probably our pockets where there's not as much demand. But generally, and certainly here for where Google is and where Apple is in Cupertino, there's no supply. It's, so you're, you're dealing with an expensive real estate market. Um, we need more housing. Um, we just submitted our our uh, suggested plan to the City of Mountain View. In fact, I believe it was yesterday uh, to help create more housing in in, in our area. Uh, the, the city hasn't. We'll study it now. That's the next step. Um, and there's a lot of talk about driverless cars. How that's going to affect. Uh, real estate longer term, you should be designing garages today, for example, that can be converted into uh, um, 
an office or residential use, right? But just building a garage that can only be used as a garage, that, that you shouldn't be doing that anymore. Um, so that's certainly... Um, that that's certainly going to have an effect on real estate. I mean, heck, the, the ultimate vision is no one will ha- own their own car, and you won't need to ha- park anywhere because the cars will drop you off and they'll they'll disappear. They'll go somewhere, but they won't be in parking structures here or these massive parking lots that we have. So so that seems to be coming. Um, and uh, but as, and as far as Google's concerned, fundamentally, I mean, we're still growing. We're hiring people, and so our our. Our continued activity, our activity will is going to continue for, you know, so it's continuing. Excellent, excellent. Um, so you've both had um, quite a bit of involvement in Cornet, and we've touched on that uh, throughout the podcast. But I was wondering if each of you could kind of talk about your specific involvement and how you feel like it's contributed to uh, your being here today. I think the involvement I've had with Cornet takes um, has several different sides to it. Certainly the easiest thing to do is to participate in the chapter meetings. And they, they rotate around geographically. So I found anytime I have the chance to do that, I'd like to go because it gives you the combination of an educational opportunity due to the content of that week's, that month's topic. And it gives you the networking opportunity to meet and get to know the people in the industry. When you're on the service provider side, it's really nice to meet the client candidates before you show up for the interview. It makes you come to an interview much more at ease and you're just better equipped for things. Then at the national conference level, I think that there you get to meet the entire industry, but you still feel an affinity for the local people. But there's always at the national meetings, there's always a Northern California chapter meeting, so you get to meet the locals at that time. But you get a greater depth of content and more experts, so I think it's a wonderful educational opportunity. I've presented a few times, not recently, but um, in the past I've presented at some of the national conferences, and I think that really forces you to think of a message with broad appeal. And you're on the stage, so you've got everybody watching you. It forces you to really be sharp and to know your topic. And it really helps you to develop your public speaking skills because the stakes are high. So I feel like I've gotten a lot out of the Cornet Global and uh, I make it a point to evangelize for them when I can. So my involvement goes back to when I, Cornet was IDRC, probably for you as well, right? Yeah. So I've, I've been going and like Bob, I've gone to the, my initially my my involvement was always at the, the national summits and they used to do t- two a year. Um, so I would, I would go to those. That's how the, I, I talk about Bill Agnello, even though Bill was local, I'm pretty sure I really didn't spend much time with him until I was in a, at a cornet. I think we we're in Orlando. Um, so going to those, so, so building that network and, and realizing there are a number of corporate, I, re- I remember when I was talking about when I, uh, when I left CPS, when I was thinking about other real estate jobs, I talked about other developers, other brokers. It really didn't dawn on me until I actually was having lunch with my colleague who was at Cisco that there was a whole world of Bob McIntyre's. And I didn't, for whatever reason, I didn't think of that as a career. And all of a sudden, I'm like, wait a minute, there are lots of people on the inside of these companies doing these jobs. And so meeting them, and then you're sharing war stories. I've mean, I always enjoyed that. You know, predicting headcount, every high-ranking executive at every company, how do you get, you know, and our, a lot of our issues are caused by inaccurate headcount forecasts, too high or too low, right? It's never accurate. And so, well, John, well, how do you deal with that? Well, th- th- as you learn, there's there's no magic answer here. Every company, to some degree, deals with ac- headcount forecasts that aren't real accurate, but that affect our jobs. Bottom line, how much real estate do you need? Well, the first question is, well, how much? What's your headcount plan? And and the vaguer the answer gets, the harder our jobs become. But then you talk to other people and you realize that, well, how are you guys doing it at Juniper or Apple or whatever? So I've you always found that valuable. And then I went through the uh, MCR and LC, L, MCR and SLCR programs, and um, what I always found interesting in those uh, their their educational you know sessions, but everyone wanted to know what Cisco was doing, or everyone wanted to know what Google was doing. So I I would a lot of times realize that what we were doing, and and, and Silicon Valley usually was at the leading edge of what the rest of the world wants to do or talk about was already happening at Apple or Google or 
Cisco or wherever we were. So to wrap up, you guys have both been extremely accommodating, giving us tons of personal stories today, and we really appreciate it. But if you could each give the listeners one piece of advice, what would it be? I would urge people, particularly those early in their career, to find one or more good mentors, to always be comparing yourself, not as much to other people, but compare yourself to who you were yesterday and work today to make yourself better than you were yesterday. You can get caught in a trap comparing yourself to other people and you can find that there's always someone who's done better than you are, someone who's risen faster, makes more money, and you can make yourself unhappy. You need to compete against yourself. Make yourself the best one person that you can be. Confucius. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think in, in maybe saying the same thing in a different way, um, uh, listen to your gut. I think people in their guts know what they want to do, but I think as, as Bob was saying, they start listening or comparing themselves to someone else or some other thing, thinking that's what they're supposed to be doing, when in their hearts and in their guts, they, they have the answers. And so I think... Uh, again, with, with what Bob's saying about getting a mentor, those are the kinds of conversations you can have with your mentor. I, I love asking. I mean, I, I, there's a couple of uh, young, I say kids, but young adults in, in my uh, ULI group. They want to be developers here in uh, the Bay Area. And I always, I said, let's talk through that. You're in the hardest real estate market in the country. And that comes with trade-offs, right? And we talk about those trade-offs. What are they? And Get them to understand every decision has a trade-off. There isn't a perfect anything, right? And it, and w- once those trade-offs are known, and that's okay, then accept them. You know, I, I was talking to one uh, one guy, and he's got a heavy family influence. The family wants him to work for the business. Uh, sorry, they they want uh, the family wants him to work for the and it's his wife's business. I think even more complicated. He doesn't want to do it. He wants to go out on his own. Then the, the decision's made. You already know politely, I'm not interested. Because he knows if he would go work for them, then it would be like, oh, he couldn't make it on his own. Oh, my God. That doesn't sound real good for your marriage. And, and it wasn't what he wanted to do. He wanted to go out on his own. And a lot of times you're just talking about it. I was just supporting him. You, you already know what you want to do. You know, do it. And, and, and again, I think the mentoring part helps because he's like, oh, okay, I, I really don't want to do that. Yeah, you don't. Th- that's fine. Totally fine. That's the acceptance of the trade-offs. Yeah. Now, having said that, you might get a little backwash from the family. Ignore it. Be polite. But that's, you know, don't worry about it. You can't make that particular issue happy. You're not going to make them happy. You, but you fundamentally decided you don't want to do it. You want, and you want to be in the Bay Area being a real estate developer. That's fine. But you know what? It is the hardest market here to do it. Lots of regulation, limited supply, all the issues that we talked about earlier. And if that's your trade-off, then fine. But then don't get ticked off if a, if a, a, a local government bogs you down in regulations or you can't find a piece of land because you're in a market where you're going to run into that all the time. And you have to accept that. And, they, and then, you know, so I, I think those are similar things what Bob was saying is just trust your instincts, trust, trust your guts, and, um, and a lot of times you already know what you want to do. I'd like to offer two other pieces of advice to the young you listeners like on the group. You threes, don't you, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> the first thing is develop an elevator speech. Know how to introduce yourself in a 30-second version, a two-minute version, a five-minute version, so that you can tell someone who you are, what you do, and where you're going. You need to have that. Next, you really learn, need to learn how to ask for a raise. To ask for a raise, you need to explain why what you do adds value to your organization. And you need to be sure that you don't err too much across your career on being overly agreeable compared to being appropriately aggressive. You need to find the right balance point. I urge lots of people to keep a list across the whole year of things you've done that you think have help the organization perform better. You have to prepare for your review and you need to go in with what your accomplishments are and make the case why you should get the money you want and you should be 
soft-spoken, but you should offer solid reasons that show what you've done and don't be afraid to let your company know that you have options. And I think that if you develop your introduction and develop how to get fairly compensated, you'll have a more satisfactory career and you feel a lot better about yourself. Yeah, okay, now I want to add on. Um, and uh, I, think that's a gr- I think that's a great comment. And don't worry if, they, if the answer is no. It's always okay to ask. I remember when I, it made me think of when I was interviewing here at uh, Google, um, I, uh, I was leaving a lot of stock options behind at Cisco. And I, when the offer came in, I ultimately said, can I get more stock? And ultimately, my boss said, I'll let you talk to the CFO. And my wife couldn't believe it. She's like, you're really going to ask? You know? And I said, sure. What's the worst thing he's going to say? No. Right? It's the worst thing he they can say to me. Yeah. When you started. So, and I think Bob said it, you do it professionally. I let him know I had a number of options that I was leaving behind at Cisco um, that I was willing to do, but could he give me more stock as part of my offer? And basically, he, he was, and I said it that way, and basically, he was just as polite and said, no, Jay, we've gone as far as we can go. And I said, okay, thanks. And I hung up, and I waited. The next morning, I called, and I said, okay, I'm, thank you for considering that, but it, I, I still want to join Google, and that was fine. But, but I think to Bob's point is, you feel good about asking. Have a, a justification or a crafted story about why you're asking, but if they say no, don't, then that's okay too, right? You've asked. The worst thing that can happen, as I said already, was they'll say no, and they might say yes. <laughs> and a lot of people are scared. I think, Bob, was what your point is, a lot of people are scared to ask for the raise. Oh, I better not. I better wait. They'll offer it to me. No. If you feel like it, go for it. Give yourself a, a, a thing. And, again, the worst thing that happens is, is, is they'll say no. Okay, that's okay. You might get a surprise yes. The other thing I was going to add was uh, – was LinkedIn. I get, I'm sure all of us get lots of LinkedIn requests to connect. To Bob's elevator pitch uh, point, a lot of LinkedIn's, you want to read two or three sentences like, what does this person do? And if I can't get it in two or three sentences, I ignore it. Or I, I go, what do they do? And I'm hunting around, I'm digging, what are they? That's number one. And number two is if you've met somebody and you're reaching out to them, don't send the generic LinkedIn, I want to be your friend or whatever it says. I look, I get them sometimes and I go, I think I met this person. I kind of don't remember. Was it at a Cornette event? Was it at a golf tournament? And I wish they would say, hey, dear Jay, I don't know if you remember, but you and I had a drink at the blah, blah, blah event, whatever. Oh, yeah. And that, I, otherwise, I get the generic request and I kind of don't remember. And then I don't know what they do because I, I read it and it's like, so really get your LinkedIn piece to Bob's point, crisp. Make sure you know right away. And if you are reaching out to somebody, spend the extra time to personalize your message. Fantastic. Well, I want to thank both of you first. I mean, you've both dropped so much advice for our listeners today. I think this will be a really great podcast for anyone who's listening in. Um, And I want to thank the listeners as well for joining us today. Please follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Cornet NorCal. If you like our podcast, please subscribe on iTunes and share on social media. We'd love to keep this conversation going and want to hear what's on your mind. As always, please share your thoughts and comments on our LinkedIn page under the post for this episode. I'm Melissa Pacey, and we'll talk to you next time.